This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. By way of getting started here, so in terms of growth in Torah, is there, what if there's something in either Torah law or rabbinic law that just bothers me or I can't understand it, maybe even long term? Am I allowed to ignore a part of Torah or refuse to be involved with a part of Torah and still be a good Jew, a Torah Jew? How do I deal with things that I don't understand or even disagree with without becoming reform or conservative? So I, I guess the best, um, I guess the best uh, analogy would be when a person deals with research, let's say in physics, and there are phenomena that don't make sense. Meaning, don't make sense means it doesn't fit into the system. And yet, you keep looking at the big structure, many things fit in. So you say to yourself, what's going to probably happen is the overall structure of the system I have does make sense, and it's working, and it predicts stuff, and stuff keeps falling in, and still there are black holes, I was pardon the pun, that don't make sense. And, and I live with it that way. It, it, in other words, I can't keep upsetting the apple cart because so many things do seem to fit into place. And my gut feeling is either I will find it to be a special case within the, within the system or somebody else will find it at some other point. It, you know, it's, if, if, if pieces fall into place and many pieces fall into place, and, and the people you meet and the, and the style of life seems to feel accountable. Uh, my suggestion is to keep those black areas as unexplained areas. Um, it, it, Torah gets its validity from the fact that Hashem said it and we accept it. And that's sort of the Nasev Nishma idea, that we accept the system and the individual pieces falling into place logically, emotionally, may, will take time. And some of those, we never maybe get around to it. But it doesn't take away from the validity. Just like in physics, you don't deny what exists, even if it's absolutely inexplicable. And it, you don't upset the entire apple cart when so many pieces make sense and two, three, four, five pieces don't make sense. I think that same approach should be used over here also. A few uh, very practical questions. In your book, um, Mentor for Life, you discuss the benefit of having a musarvad, some kind of a you know right. a group that gets together for ongoing spiritual growth post yeshiva. Right. Can you suggest topics, ideal frequency of the meetings, and any tips to keep members of the vod consistent and dedicated? Um, so the truth is, it's something that I read. Um, somebody, Rabbi Cohen, Rabbi Zev Cohen in Chicago, was was the one who spoke about this. Now, the idea of a vad existed always in yeshivas um, in the in the early years. Today, it's less consistent and less part of the structure of yeshiva, but it was something that was there. Um, the idea of of transferring it outside of yeshiva setting, Rabbi Cohen pioneered it, and he seemed to be very successful. It's an idea that actually has caught on a lot because people really feel it's a vehicle for constant growth. Um, how I, the details, I, I hope that it'll come out from people sincerely trying. 
um, my sense would be the important pieces that are needed are people of a similar cut. Because since we're talking about things that are practical, you're going to need people who are facing the same, the same issues, have the same givens, and so on. Two, my sense is once every two or three weeks makes sense. Anywhere between once or two weeks to once in a month, I think, makes sense. Um, and and f- hopefully a, a cadre of people capable of leading groups like that and making sensible proposals and, and running sensibly will emerge. It, it's really something I, I threw out because I felt it was a very good idea uh, by Cohen's experience, and I actually, you know, I actually pushed it on to him. Um, I, I did a Skype group in Lakewood for, f- for a few times. I told him I'm only willing to do it for a few times because... I think you need a personal group. Rabbi Cohen has stepped in. I'm hoping that more um, paradigms of workable topics and ideas will emerge. I, I admit it's something that, it's an idea that really caught my fancy, and I think a lot of people, it, it also, um, it, it, the idea really took them. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping it's something that will, uh, experience itself is going to develop the, 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 the right the right type of topics to approach, the right type of, of you know, Kabbalists uh, to make, you know, to accept you know, what, what proposals, proposals of, of action that will make sense. On the one hand, people feel they grow spiritually. On the other hand, they feel that it's not too much. You, you have to understand the, the one thing is, you, you it, it's like, again, going back to investment models, since um, you need to be skeptical of anything that grows more than a few percentages ahead of the market. Because anything that grows more than that is suspect, A, it's suspect, and B, it's suspect to, to have it to be as volatile and to have downsides like that. When people grow in yeshiva, it's a year or two, you're spending in a very high charge environment, you're at a point in life when you're ready to make great changes, and your changes are going to be phenomenal. Then life comes in. The, the rhythm of life is long, steady and it's till you're 120 things that people make sudden radical change at that point in life are suspect suspect being volatile individuals suspect to lack of sustainability (coughs) and you're looking for small pieces that slowly move you in the direction you want to that's that's the most i could tell you and i'm hoping that a, a lot of people are interested in it and i hope Things will develop where we have really good models for, for to emulate. Are these just peer groups, or do you need a rabbi involved with it also? You need a rabbi who has an idea of what what what, what do we want from people? You know, when people go and say we don't want to speak any Lashon Hara, that's great. But but there's so many issues. How do I get from where I am to, to not speak Lashon Hara? What are really pieces of growth? How do I what I talk to people about? Um, how do, what do I do when people talk to me about somebody? What happens if I import faith? It, it, to, to take the idea of, of, of an ideal and translate it into real life requires a lot of chachma. So, you know, I'm not waiting for that. It, it, it's, you know, a, an, an effective learning program. How far can I push myself? What, what, is, the, what is the goal I'm pushing for? You know, it, it's, it's a work in progress. And, and, and I'm, I'm hoping that one thing to come out will be... Um, Working models. What should a yeshiva student have accomplished spiritually upon leaving yeshiva? 
and what and, and if I haven't accomplished certain things, what you know, what what what's necessary to accomplish before I go, and I have to be concerned that maybe I'm leaving prematurely if I've not accomplished those things. Um, so I guess a a skill level that I can do things myself. I think that that's critical because if you can if you can learn text on your own, you can explore things on your own. You can being able to learn a Gemara on your own, for instance, a opens up so much for you where you can. It also opens up in its natural flavor when you want to get a sense of a person teaching or leading. How genuine is it? Where exactly, where's this person holding? What's his level? Um, how solid is the base of what he says? Being able to have some ability to um, look at source material yourself is, is, is very important. God willing, when you have children and you're able to study with them, you want to have a level where you can, where you can do Hebrew text on your own. The different levels of it. From Chumash and Rashi to Gemara, um, but I think that that's a critical piece. And having enough information, having some level of knowledge about many areas in Torah, I don't know, it's hard for me to put a more specific finger because you want to be realistic, but knowing some background information about many topics, I think those are areas that, those are two areas. And I think feeling comfortable with, with religious practice to a point where you can make it habit instead of um, a, a, a task, because you know even though everyone talks about not making things habit and rote, but it's just like walking. You you want to be able to make walking into a habit, um, because you can't afford the brain space to keep thinking about taking every step of the way. If the practice becomes easy, and then you use some of your spare brain cells to think about it, then you're good. But, but if you have to contemplate every time you're doing something, and it's a whole new task, and, and getting yourself physically to do it is, is an issue, th then you have so much of your brain is occupied with just getting through the mitzvah tasks, and it becomes a very difficult thing. Can we ever feel truly, can we ever feel true spirituality, such as the presence of our neshamas, or Hashem? Can we rely on our perceptions there that they accurately perceive the divine or spiritual world, or is this just our mind playing tricks on us? Um, so those experiences we're talking about are emotional experiences. I, I guess that's the way we define it. Um, we feel something unique, something different, something uh, other else. The question, is it your mind playing tricks or not, is going to have to match up with some objective criteria. Let me give an example. Um, a doctor, a patient comes to a doctor. You usually come to a doctor because something is bothering you enough <clears throat> that the bother of going to the doctor is less than the bother of whatever it is that's bothering you. So something hurts. Some, some, your foot hurts, your hand hurts, your stomach hurts. Now, how much hurts and what hurts is personal. And that's really what you look for a treatment. Some, something, that's, something that's medical abnormality but doesn't bother you, 
you say, I couldn't care less. You know, it's fine. This is good. It's not bothering me. So, so something bothers you, something hurts. So when the doctor is probing and pulling and pushing, he's trying to find a correlation between some objective medical issue and your feelings. So if your, if your sense of pain is in places or it's a pattern that makes no sense, he's going to say to himself, A, either you're playing a game because you want pain medication. That's one possibility. A second possibility is um, something else is bothering you and the pain is just radiating from someplace else. Third of all, um, you have some psychological issues and this is what is expressing it. Or it's really a condition that I don't know about. Those, those are the possibilities. But what he's looking at is to correlate something that makes... So if you have pain here, 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 he says, great, it's the nerve. It's the, it's, the, it's the sciatica nerve. And therefore you have a pain here, here, and here. And if your sense of pain and his objective sense of, of, of disease patterns jive, then we know, yes, that's what it is. When a person has, when a person has religious practices and no emotional experiences, he's not sure if he's doing the right thing. If he has emotional experiences, but they don't correlate to anything, then the question is maybe it's just your mind playing games with you. You're looking for something and you have it. So ideally, when halacha and a sense of things makes, you know, jives together, we say, ah, oh, this is it. So we're trying to get a sense, A, the two together. That's one piece of it. But there's another piece of it, and I think that this is people are less understanding of. Um, anyone who's sort of new to religious practice, there are moments of extraordinary highs. That's not sustainable. So even if it's something that's real, it's not sustainable because a high means... It's the extraordinary, the unusual, the different. A better sense would be, um, let's say a person has um, a, a person has a day when he's when he when he missed his learning seder. He's been learning very consistently, he misses it, and he feels a void. Let, let me tell a personal experience. Um, I grew up religious, religious practices what I've done since I'm a little child, and sometimes. I have more profound senses on those less. When my father passed away, so he passed away, it was on a, on a Wednesday, and we took him to Israel, and it wasn't until Friday that they buried him. So there were two days when I had a halachic status of an onan, that's pre-morning, the body's not buried pre-morning, and under most circumstances, you do not have to keep any positive mitzvahs. You don't daven, you don't put on film, you don't say brachas, you, you, you wash your hands because, you know, you're not allowed to do something that's negative, you take off the ruach tumah, but you don't do anything positive. There were two days in my life that felt empty. I felt yucks. It's like, I just get up and grab something to eat. No davening, no brachas, nothing of, of real a spiritual life and f for me it was the first time in my life that I felt what I normally have was actually in its absence I, not every time I make a bracha do I gung-ho not every time I go I daven am I, am I very very gung-ho but not having it, it all of a sudden felt a tremendous void and then I realized what I have I look sometimes 
at pictures of Shabbos, like like a, a non-Jew will photo, will, will will take a picture of a group on Shabbos on that. It feels very weird because when I'm in Shabbos, I feel it's different. Shabbos is just a different day. I don't, I don't feel I have to be gathered in the synagogue with with nice clothing. It's Shabbos, and it feels different. Um, it's not exhilarating, but it's different. It's Shabbos. Um, and the same thing with Rosh Hashanah, same thing with Yom Kippur, same thing with Purim, same with Torah. You, you just feel it's a different reality. Um, so, so, and that's a long term, it's a long time of accumulated sense of things. Um, so on Shabbos, my clock is different. My, my, just my internal clock is different. I'm hungry at different times of the day. I'm tired at different times of the day. It, to me, that's a sign that my religious experiences have become part of myself. Um, so, so I would say, generally speaking, highs come infrequently. They come initially. They come at special times. Um, and if they correlate, if you find yourself correlating the two, then you know you're into something. I want to tell over a story. Um, Rav Salvechik, the Shiva Yeshiva University, was once asked by a woman about wearing a talus. And she said, and he told her, it's not good to jump into things, you know, straight out. First, wear a talus without tzitzis for three months, and then we'll talk about the next step. So she did it. She came back, and he asked, how was it? She said, amazing. It's the most amazing religious experience I ever had. My davening was different. This is different. She told her, my dear lady, talus without tzitzis is zero. So obviously, it's just your mind playing a game with you because there was no religious experience in wearing a towels without tzitzis. So it's not tzitzis you're missing, it's just some emotional component. Um, that was, uh, you know, that was a very sharp way of presenting it. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying that in the correlation between what I'm doing and, and what I'm doing in a halakhic sense and what I'm doing emotionally should give us some guide as to when it's a genuine experience and when it's kind of... Uh, just a you know, kind of a, a high based on, on other things. How can we bridge secular and Torah <coughs> timelines of human history, for example, the most recent 15,000 years? I can understand the first seven days of creation in the Garden of Eden as existing outside of space and time, as we typically think about it, but how, for, how, for example, do we explain that people lived in North and South America beginning in the last ice age and seemingly never came into contact with anyone from Eurasia or Africa, which is the geography of the Torah, until Columbus. This is just one of such several, of several such examples. So, so the most I can do, the best I could do is offer possibilities. Um, in other words, the Torah itself discusses very little of what was. Um, it's sort of um, not giving us almost no information. Um, Chazal give us some information which is unclear how much is literal, how much is metaphor, and what and so on and so forth. So uh, all I can do is look at it. You, th- there are several models that work well in both ways. Um, you know, and, and they go from, they range from end to end. Um, as long as you're sticking to a general context of the Torah, it's possible. Um, there are some that I feel more comfortable, some less comfortable. Let me tell you what I feel 
is more, most comfortable with in, a, in the big picture. We look around and the universe stretches endlessly. Um, you know, I mean, the, technically it is fixed, but there, there are galaxies um, beyond where we could look at the furthest telescopes and so on and so forth. What's the point of that all? What's the point of everything we have around us? Um, when only a, a, a tiny, 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 infinitesimally small part of that universe has people, sentient beings, and so on. I mean, the people keep looking for aliens, but, but it, it, logically that's nonsense. Like, the only reason to look for aliens is because the movies have them. There's no other reason to look for... I, I mean, the chances against a complex life like ours evolving anywhere is, is incredibly small. It's just kind of teasing. It's just like people like to, to think about it. But it, it, it doesn't make any sense to look for it. So, so assuming that we're the only people that even resemble anything thinking and sentient and, and consciousness and everything, what's the point of it all? So there are, one, um, just our sense of the world being incredibly huge and giving us our sense of being humble. Part of that is fostered by the more we see the grandness of the world, the more we feel humbled, that's, that's one. Two, um, there may be a mechanical reason for it. You know, there's an order for our planet and the sun and the stars to, 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 to give us the sense we have. It needs a lot of mechanism. Um, we can't have a situation of a universe where God is right behind Mars or Venus. The world has a natural structure to it. And if the natural structure requires the amount of matter we have in the universe so that everything stays where it is, between the pull of different things and so on, that's a possibility. So I have two possible reasons for most everything we have around us now. One is for our sense of things. Two, um, it, 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 you, we need a mechanical explanation for everything aside from God. And whatever is needed to give the world that 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 explanation, we have it. Now, going back to the question. Um, we have a natural history of the world. We have um, things that that from the dating we do seem to be dated a long time ago. Either this all came into being because it was needed to give the world a natural history. The world cannot... Or God started the world... He, he put it in a natural history, you know, there was a flow of natural history, but the world that is centered around us starts at the point where sentient, conscious, moral beings came into place. Um, those are possibilities. I, I can't say anything definitive because I have nothing to work on. Um, <coughs> but the, the things that are important for us, it's, it's, it's the world, the Torah is centered on us. And the, we're the only beings that can make moral choices. Were there actually other beings, except the Torah starts its history at the point where moral beings came into place? Was there an accelerated history where things flowed very rapidly? Were, this, were the eras the Torah speaks of worlds that were and no longer are represent those worlds? It says in Chazal that there were, I think, 900 and some odd generations that were covered that basically ceased to exist before the world was created 
um, we, we see geologically, there were many geological worlds that were around and no longer exist. We see anthropologically, there were many human societies that ceased to exist. Were those societies virtual societies where they exist only as fossils? Or do they actually existed and fossilized? Whatever it is, the point to us is none of these systems were systems that God was interested in. He wanted human beings as we have today. Conscious, free choice, with a sense of morality. Um, and we need to have a natural history built to the world. So, so if the world itself existed only 5,000 years in terms of what we have in front of us, then God, then it might as well said made, in God, made by God. The world we have in front of us exists for eons. Um, whether it existed that way or the natural history is built into the world, it doesn't make a difference. The point is, the world that's important to us started 5,000 years ago, and there is a prior world that either existed in fact and was removed, or existed as virtual history, so that our sense of things is, is this is, there's a natural sense of things. What I'm trying to say is, the world can always be interpreted two ways. A natural world, just like physics can be interpreted that way, natural history can be interpreted that way. Or, um, God actually, those worlds existed, and they fit under that framework of what Chazal tells us worlds that were and are no longer there. Those are my two ways of, of looking at it. So I can't be specific with details, but my point is, what are these, all these worlds that I uncover? What, what are they meant? Either they're meant to be the natural history of the world, and they came as history to the world, or they existed, in fact, and God removed them because there's no point in a world that can't produce morally um, free-willed people. What should the role of Jews be in making the world a better place, including trying to address some of humanity's biggest challenges? How do Jews improve the world or make a Kiddush Hashem if we live in isolated communities? So there was an article recently in The Economist about one of the world's worst organizations to work for. And this is an organization where the culture, the, the internal culture of that organization is horrendous. You know, man-eat-man type of thing. The name of the organization is Amnesty International. If you want to, you can look it up online. I don't remember. I, I, I cut it out. I usually cut these out. Until I file it, it takes me a long time. So I'm dating myself to be actually cut out from a magazine and snap. They know you can get it online and just, and, and, but I, it takes time. And the point of it is, it's not hypocritical. I don't think these people are hypocrites. But I think it's easy to talk about, to be farsighted, and to talk about the evil that exists in the world outside and around us, than it is to really develop human relations from the inside out. Most, you, you get bad and wicked rulers come in two versions, psychopaths or a society that just is built on unhealthy, um, on unhealthy uh, foundations and, 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 it, and it becomes runaway bad. Nazis were psychopaths. Communists started with wonderful people, and something about the internal mechanism is it became Stalin and Pol Pot and, and, and every other evil person. And Mao Zedong, who's still a hero, but it was it was 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 uh, killed probably more people than Hitler did. Um, you, the, the Torah it says, if you're not good to start, 
that whatever you build out, and that's why an organization like Amnesty International can deal with the terrible things going on in the world, but can't. But it's not built on the mental cutting people to people. Um, and I think Torah society tries to build that way. Uh, for instance, Lashon Hara, the idea of not speaking bad about people doesn't exist in society. We have gossip columns. They're there for a reason. It, it, it's not seen as being a bad thing. Uh, it, it, so um, all, all the things that we look in the Torah as the right way to deal with people, you can't build that out. The world's woes, the problems start because the foundation is laid wrong. So no matter how well, no matter how many good things you'll do, you, if people don't build right from the bottom up, it includes a sense of, I am a creation. I'm here for a purpose. Self is not the ultimate in the world. And, and things of that nature. Um, when, when I was growing up in the 60s, the, some people with tremendous ideals tried to change the world. Um, all, the, all the college students who rebelled in the 60s were trying to do good things. A follow-up study, uh, I don't know, a few decades ago, what happened to all those leaders? So those who didn't die of overdosing ended up in Wall Street and be making a lot of money being, you know, and poster boys capitalists. And the reason was it was a movement built on a lot of emotions, but no real understanding from the bottom up. We're going to change the world. It, it, it's like even now when they have these, these I forgot what's this thing on Wall Street uh, a few years ago, conquer, not conquer Wall Street. Occupy about, Wall what? Street. Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street. So somebody wrote... Uh, 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 you know, somebody was was with them, a reporter, and wrote up. They're having a big meeting, so now everybody has their opinions. So you're out of order. No, you're trying to impose class structure. What do you mean order? Everyone should together work. And 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 this and 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 you know, it, it's it sounds great until you realize it's nonsense. Everybody can work together. There are brighter people. There's stupider people. The, the, the majority. Either you go with the majority when the minority doesn't like it, so you're oppressing the minority. Well, so if everybody does what they want to do, you don't have a movement. You have anarchy. So, so there is authority. What makes authority, um, you know, what gives authority its rights? You can't do things unless you answer some tough questions and are willing to take it. It's, the majority will win, and then some, some people in the minority are going to be very unhappy. Um, do, do you do it, go along with it or not? Um, if you if you, if they decide to elect a man as head, does that mean? Let's say people don't think a woman can do the job, and whatever it is, it, it, you know, if if you, it's very nice to march around on a commerce, on a on a on a on a college campus and shout slogans, but you need to run a society. You can't give free health to everybody without sacrificing something else. So so you know a typical. You know, I, it's, it's, it, it, Medicare for all is a great idea. There should not be a situation in America where people don't have health care. So, but where do you cover the money from? So I saw, you know, yes, cancel all military spending and you have the money you need. That's great. So that means that Islam will take over the world. Do you want to have not to be able to fight Iran? What about North Korea? What, what about, you know, when people are being, you know, murdered in, in Africa? Do you want to be able to step in or not step in? It don't, you know, it, it, those are tough choices. Who makes those choices? What's moral? What's not moral? You, the, the type of emotional hype, it's motivated by good things, but it's destructive. So, so building a Torah society means teaching people 
what is the moral authority? What does it mean to reign in yourself? It, you know, you can't, men, men um, naturally are attracted to women, and to men also, but they're attracted to women. And the attraction is, means that you push as far as you can go, then a little bit further. So unless a person learns to rein in what he wants to do, you're not going to have a society where, and, and if a woman will, try, will, will, will feel comfortable provoking a man, you're going to have problems. It means men and women are going to have to rein in themselves. What are those reining in of themselves that's needed? Uh, uh, without the Torah direction, you don't, you don't have anything concrete. You don't have anything. So, so now um, it, 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 you're going to have the problem no matter what. Torah, to build a Torah society means we have a society where every person builds himself first. And then hopefully we have human beings that have what it takes to act morally. And then you hopefully have a society. And if we have a society that, that, that runs well, then the world will be influenced. I, I, look at yourselves as an example. You didn't grow up in a Torah society. Being here besides the wonderful facilities and the view over here and the, and the lunches that are adorable and Rabbi Jacobs, I'm sure, part of, part of what attracts you, or at least makes you stay here, is that you look around and you see people and families that have something to offer. And you say to yourself, how is it that people tend to be married for a very long time, don't cheat, have a lot of kids, a lot more than you could ever think of handling, and the kids seem to spend inordinate hours studying. There's something about it that's unique and different and needs to be, you know, at least, you, you need to at least be able to, to say, no, it's not, before moving further. So something about a society that is doing right is, is makes you think and, and makes you wonder and, and, and attracts. If we would do that, if the, if, if the non-Jewish world found Jews to be honest to a fault, and whatever you say is what you do, and, and, and the lifestyle is something where you, you're, you, you know, everything about it is, is very spiritual, I mean, you know, and then, then, then people who are good will be attracted. That's, the, that's our picture of what our job is. Why am I held to the obligation agreed upon by my ancestors to keep the Torah? I didn't agree to anything. Well, if your ancestors, let's take them, whatever financial decisions your ancestors made, uh, um, you either eat the fruit or suffer the consequence. I once read somebody wrote an account of his life, and he said, this person is very wealthy, and he said the reason why he's wealthy is because he inherited a duck farm from his great-great-grandmother. And the guy looked at him, you know, the reporter, whoever was writing the story, said, I mean, duck farms are nice. He said, yeah, it was located between 50th and 60th Street on the east side of Manhattan. <laughs> so he said, you know, so, so if you were fortunate enough, we're, we're, I know somebody, and somebody she with me, his father in Europe was offered a chance to either buy a piece of property on Rehov Yafin Yashalayim, or a piece of property in Afula. And this person reasoned, since Afula was the capital of the Amic Israel, where all the agriculture was, that's where, 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 where real estate is going to go up. So he bought a, a place in Afula. 
um, it, it was enough to buy him a small apartment in Yerushalayim, the grandson. Had he bought in Rehov Yafo the piece of land, that, then, then he could have bought all the fuller at, 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 <laughs> at the prices. But at the end of the day is, we are the decisions they made. If our, if our grandparents made a decision to, for an unhealthy lifestyle, if, if, if somebody's, it, we are, we inherit a lot. In the earliest stage of Kaisal, that's a bond. Akadosh Baruch the genetic pool was open still. And some decision like that, who would be a Kohen, who would be a Levi, who would be a Jew, became part of our genetic heredity. Um, it, it's fortunate because we can, we can rise to the challenge of a Torah lifestyle and make use of it. We can keep Tariq mitzvahs in the meaningful to us. That's, the, that's what we got out of it. It also means we're challenged to do so. So everything we get from, our, you know, we, we do get what our parents gave us, and at that point, we get to be Jews no matter what. It means that we have some deep spiritual kohos, some deep spiritual strengths. We, we, we can go out on a limb to do things that are right in ways that no one else has built in. So it's a blessing, and it's a challenge. That's, that's what we're stuck with. How do we deal with something like slavery in Judaism, which obviously modern society views as very evil? How do we reconcile that with its existence in the Torah? So the Torah recognized it as being a terrible curse. The Torah cursed Ham with being a slave. <coughs> it means, I think it means the idea, the concept of slavery came into being with that. And the Torah saw it as a terrible punishment for somebody. The Torah gave us, in, in, in ancient society, slavery was a part and parcel of society. Um, society ran with it. It wasn't possible for one group to say we're rejecting slaves. It's like saying, I'm not going to buy anything that they don't pay the workers $25 an hour. There's nothing, you couldn't afford a suit like that. You couldn't, I mean, the reason why we're dressed reasonably well and comfortable is because somebody in China is making our shirts for a dollar and somebody in America is selling it for $10. I mean, the reality is society has a pyramid where people work very, very, very hard. My mother, Allah Shalom, worked in a sweatshop. She got paid pennies. I mean, no, it's an American sweatshop, so she got paid something. But the people who bought those coats, those were, those were top-of-the-line coats. So society worked like that. There wasn't a real way around it. And the Torah gave us laws to, to be relatively humane in our treatment of them. The Torah didn't say it's ideal for society. Um, the Torah said it's a curse. Um, Torah didn't give a vision for the end of days, except that people will not be dependent on each other. Um, that's a general sense of it. So my sense is, A, it's, it's an evil that became part of society. There, there was no way for any person to say, we're going to not have slaves. Two, the Torah gave us, just like war, the Torah, by giving us laws about war, doesn't condone it as much as, say, these are, just like what we have today, we have some laws limiting the inhumanities in war. We recognize that war is going to be, unfortunately, around with us for a long time. And... I think I think the the vision of end of days is not like that. The vision of end of days is slavery is not meant to stay. It's a cursed part of what we are, and hopefully will change. Um, can you explain the idea of what a Gilgul is, why it exists, and just technically, if there's going to be a resuscitation of the dead, which body gets that soul? Okay. Um, 
So let's go slow. There is no place in over in non-Kabbalah literature that speaks about a Gilgal. As a matter of fact, um, Reb Sadi Gohan um, says there is no such thing. In other words, it's not part of um, the the revealed Torah. It's something that Kabbalah brought in, but it's very it, it, because of Kabbalah bringing in, it means it's not clear exactly the points of it. Um, the basic outline is as follows: Every person is here in this world to bring out the best in himself and to weed out what's not good in himself. If a person doesn't succeed, there are ways that um, that that it's done. The, the the Gehenim process is a process where a person suffers the pain of what's wrong in him, and that sort of gets it out of his system. There are different ways in which Hashem works to bring about the, the perfecting of ourselves. One of those concepts mentioned in Kabbalah is Gilgal. It's kind of mentioned, whenever it's spoken about, it's spoken about as a hidden process. In other words, you can't commercialize it. You can't walk around telling people who they are, who they were, and so on and so forth. What it tends to be more is a part of yourself experiences things that they were meant to experience that didn't get around to, whether it's good or experiences sometimes the suffering of what you did wrong. So if a person stole and, and then he experiences a loss where he worked off something, someone stole from him, it sort of weeds out of his person the sense of stealing. So imagine yourself, imagine a person steals and then he himself worked hard for something and everything is stolen from him. The pain and the suffering teaches him what was wrong about stealing. So some of those, or a person needed to experience the incredible pleasure of Torah study and he never was able to. So it's somewhere on certain things, the, the thing that Hashem does for us is bring us back to re-experience it again. It doesn't have to be our entire sense of self. It, it can be one part of self. And these are things that I don't know what I'm talking about. All I'm saying is, it's not as if I'm walking around saying, hmm, I was, you know, Colonimus III, two Gilgulim ago, and, and Shabti the fourth, four Gilgulim ago, and this and that. I, that's good for movies. It's not, it doesn't, it's not. However we'll understand it, the point of it is, it's to give us another chance it, it, the the, the pasuk that's used to describe it is Hashem will work two times, three times with a person to make it right. In other words, we, a lifetime is meant to give us experiences that change us, that bring out the best in us. One of the ways, if it's incomplete in our lifetime, one of the ways is through Gehenna. One of the ways is through re-experience it again. It could be a part of ourself. It could be um, something, but basically that's, that, that's as far as we know about it. Uh, it, 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 it. Making it more tangible than that, I think begins to, dis- it's, not, it's not right. It, it's, it's not something that we're supposed to picture it as part and parcel of our life, of having all sorts of gulim running around. It, it, when it starts like that, then, then you know you're off base. It is, it's a process 
where you can experience some things you missed out on that you need to, read, to, 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 to redo things. And so occasionally you'll have a safer will point out that this was, this and this person lived only for this experience. Sometimes you see a person was almost born for something. There was an eerie, an eerie experience we had in our, in our Zabira neighborhood. There was a family there where the husband had lost a brother um, at a young age, at 19 or something like that, a young man, um, tragically in a car accident. <coughs> He got married, lived in Azabira, wonderful person. He, his oldest boy he named after this brother. Um, this boy was, um, was a wonderful child. He, the father was a, big, a, a great Balkriya. He laid the Torah really well, and he taught the child the Pasha every week. And w- w- this was, I think, before his bar mitzvah, a year before his bar mitzvah, maybe, two years before his bar mitzvah. He, the kid liked laning and laying. And then, he, then there was one day, the parish that he taught him ended, that Aliyah ended with, and Moshe finished all of the work and everything that had to be done for the Temple of God. The mother took the child to Cheder with her mother to the airport. There was a car crash. The child was killed instantly, and everyone else was unscathed. It was very eerie. Here's a child named for somebody who had a short life, and the last thing he read with his father in the Torah was, and his task was completed, everything he set up to for God, but Chalka bought and so on and so forth, and that was it. They, they parents, I don't, they don't live in Harnoff, I think they live in Goldfield, Haskell Goldfield, you know, that was him, his, his son and his brother. Binyamin, I, I, he was, uh, yes, that's, there's a person, it's eerie. What does it mean? I don't know, but all I know is it's eerie um, about, you know, and, and, uh, I don't, you know, so, so there are times when a person almost seems as if this is what he had to do, and that was it. It, 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 it's, it you know, it's, it, it's not something that should be said very blithely, kind of, you know, yeah, this was a good, this he did this, he did that. I don't know, but sometimes there are things. There's a story. This story came to light much later. Not a Gilgal story, but again, this type of idea of a person needing to finish what he has to do. The Rosh Hashiva of Tel's Yeshiva in Europe. One of the earlier she was named Blazer Gordon. He um, went on a money on, on, a, on a trip to collect money in 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 London, in England. He died suddenly. Was buried there, and it was kind of very a sudden death. He wasn't a young person, but he was an old person, and you know, and they and and. Uh, and, and it was kind of eerie the way he went to England on a fundraising trip and just died suddenly, and that was it. The, somebody said a eulogy on him. He quoted a verse from Vracious. I, I was stolen from the land of the Hebrews, and here also I didn't do anything because I was put into a pit. It's a Pasuk. And in, in order to quote about Rabbi Gordon, that he, um, he left the country where everybody was like studying Torah seriously, England at that time was not a very Torah-developed country, and he was put in a pit, and he died. That was kind of, you know, it's like tragic. He just suddenly left it. The family has a story. It came to light a few years ago. It was printed. In this trip in London, first of all, the amount of money he needed didn't really warrant him going on a trip overseas. It wasn't a large amount of money. They had, they had the figures. They had, this, the family knows this. Secondly, so he went to England on a whim to raise the money needed. He met two interesting people in England. When Rabbi Gordon became the Rav of Tells, 
everybody wanted him. Two people were very upset by it. There was a candidate for the, for the rabbinate in Tells who felt he should have been chosen. He had some sort of in before. He either had been a rabbi in town before. He was related to the previous rabbi. I don't know the story, but he was very miffed, and he left in a huff. The second person was a shochet that the, 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 the rabbi, Rev Gordon, took him. Shochet. A shochet is a, is a, is a, a person who's, who slaughters animals halachically. They have considered to be a very important job. Before they had, you know, massive, uh, today we have massive kasha organizations. The rabbi in town was in charge, and part of the sort of submitting to the rabbi's opinion was the shochet would sh- show him the knife every year. He would check that he's sharp, he knows how to do it, and he would tell him, you're authorized to slaughter cattle. Um, the old shochet was an older person. He didn't feel that he needed to or comfortable submitting to the opinion of a young rav, and he refused, and he was fired. Both these people ended up in England. Both of these people, Rev. Gordon met on his trip, and he, and sort of talking, he realized that they were upset with him, and he apologized, he mended with them, with both these people, and then he died. Do we know? We don't know. But it's strange that a person needed to do these two things before he died to make amends for two people that he wasn't at fault, maybe, and so on. It's something that the family carries this feeling, and it was, it was printed a few years ago in the newspaper, and I've heard from other family members that this is the family history, this is how, what they see. So the, the, the idea of a Gilgal is the idea that a person has something set to accomplish, um, sometimes we're fortunate we accomplish it in life, and if not, Hashem works it out somehow that we, that we accomplish it. <clears throat> Is there any piece of information that you could receive or experience that could disprove your belief in Judaism? What what bothers you or hinders your amuna the most? Um, you know, let, let me let me answer it in a different way a little bit. Let's take an example of um, the following situation. I know somebody who seems to be suffering terribly. Unjustly. Does it bother me? Yes. Does it shake my faith? What happens to the person himself who's suffering? Unjustly. Does his faith get shaken? Yes. Why? What's the difference? If it's a logical, uh, if it's a logical issue, why is somebody else's <coughs> suffering different than my suffering? It's the same question on God. So basically, um, experiences of self are the ones that either make the strongest connection to God or the strongest questions, questions test your faith strongest. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's things that um, a person himself goes through difficulties. When you feel, when you live through injustices that seem to, to keep, you know, going on. Um, that's something that uh, tests faith. On the other hand, the longer a person lives, somehow you see more and more things turn out, especially at that side of the... Uh, more and more people that seem to be succeeding unjustifiably 
um, people that are not good people, so on, somehow at the end, their own bad consumes them. And, you know, things that bothered me about X, Y, or Z, as time went on, I realized they're not succeeding. They sort of are um, consuming themselves. So this so-and-so who is a tyrant and a difficult person and, and so many people suffer because of him and he seemed to be successful, fast forward 10 years, 20 years, all of a sudden he's, he's lost his grip on power, his kids want to have nothing to do with him. You know, to me, a lot of things as time goes on seem to make things right again. And if I can paraphrase David HaMelech, David HaMelech said, I, my faith was severely shaken when I saw the wicked succeed and so, so forth, until at the end I came to the temples of God and I saw that at the end the wicked don't succeed. Any, any, any still frame carries a lot of injustice to it. The picture, the video, you begin to see things, patterns emerging where you see not like that. So in my mind, the longer things go on, the more I get a sense that in the end, when you see the bigger picture, things are right. So A, personal experiences are the most powerful in terms of either testing or buttressing faith. Two, um, the longer you see things working out, the more you begin to see where in the end just, it's not only that God steps in, it's, it's, the, it's the road itself destroys the person. Why are certain mitzvahs defined as time-bound for a woman while others are not, like Nida or Shabbos candles? Why does the Gemara, what does the Gemara or our earliest sages say about women as part of the minion, wearing a talit, actually addressed that, learning Gemara? So there is, it is clear that A, women have different roles, that's, that's different. In other words, one would say they bring different strengths to the table. Um, there are things that women... And let's, let's look at the general sense. It's a long topic, and it's something... The things that seem to emerge time and again is a woman's role in how things will come out in many ways is more central than a man's. Her influence, her... Um, her, at the household, things of that nature, the family, she, in many ways, is the more dominant. And that's why giving the Torah, she was spoken to first, because she would have the bigger role in creating a Torah family. On the other hand, the two roles that are off-limits for women is full leadership. In other words, not leadership Leadership, we have discussionary power, one. Two, um, intensive Torah study. Intensive Torah study is not prohibited. It's seen as not being wise. There's no why given. I can, you know, I can make some assumptions. I can try to say explanations. There's no why given. Um, and then there's the time-bound laws, which unclear, you know, why not? Again, there's good conjectures. But it, but it's but it's no why given. <coughs> My feeling is, uh, let's let's go through a, a point about a healthy home has a father and a mother. It's not just two people 
so that they can, you know, that when one of them is sick and tired, that they can stump the, you know, the kids and the other one because at some point you go out of your mind. That's not the, not the reason. A father and mother is two different voices. A, a typical father voice will be, you know, we made a deal and we said if you do X, you're going to get Y. You go on the trip. You didn't, you didn't follow through. I, I pointed out once, a second time, it's time for consequence. You need to bear the consequence of your actions. A mother will say, typically, but give him one more chance. And those two voices are both voices that you need to have both of them all your life. There needs to be a voice of justice and a voice of um, extending beyond justice. Sometimes this is the right one, sometimes this is the right one. Hashem, we have Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a day of pure justice. Yom Kippur is a day of trying to make amends and to sort of ask God to sort of go beyond justice and be nice to us. Sometimes this is right, sometimes this is right. But those are two very different voices. Leadership requires a, a type of voice which is strict. The law is the law, and consequences are consequences. A woman would be less than good at that. You can bring, yes, there are examples this way, that way, but I, that's how I think the Torah evaluated personalities. The same thing is true with Torah study. Intensive Torah study requires where you don't look at the people involved, you look at the law. Um, I've said over this story many times, and to me this is a story that sort of brings out, a personal story that brings out the, the, the difference between men and women very well. Um, I was once having an argument with my wife in the, fo- in the following way. Somebody was in a situation where <coughs> he went to work for a company. The company offered him a contract that was very fair by market standards, absolutely fair. Um, the person read through it and agreed to the contract. The person anticipated it would meet his needs, livelihood needs. It was a firm company, so everybody was kind of, you know, very kind of know, know each other, care for each other type of situation, which is, has its issues. The person signed on, started working. A few months later, he realized he can't make it on that. And he came back and asked for a substantial raise. The company said, we can't. This is what we're offering. It's fair by market rate, more than fair. You agree to it, tough luck. He said, but I need more. So I said, I think the company is, is right. And you know, maybe we can find charity for the person. But my wife said, no, it's not fair, whatever it is. There was a third person sitting with us. This person was a close friend of my wife, her cousin. She's a, she teaches calculus in college. And she was taking my wife's side. And I turned to her exasperated and I said, and hi, I don't get you, you teach logic in college. What you're saying makes no sense. So she said, you sound like my husband. <laughs> and she said, I'll tell you what I tell my husband. Logic is a course I teach in college. Life is not about logic. Now, to me, that was a powerful point. She's a much brighter woman than, than, she's much brighter than me. She could probably run rings around me on, on, on pure logic. But at the end of the day, if life has to run on something, it has to run on fear, good, whatever you want to call it, fear, F-A-I-R. Um, and, and now, there's a time for this, there's a time for this. Um, it's important, it's like in a Dintora, when you have a court case, you must rule, there are, there are two laws about not favoring people. Do not favor the wealthy and powerful, and do not favor the poor and the downtrodden. It's also wrong 
to mess up a law case, lawsuit, because this person needs the money more. What you need to do is you need to rule exactly the way it is. You need to suggest after, once you've ruled, you need to ask the wealthy person to give charity to the poor person. But never mix up charity with law. So my sense is both learning the intense uh, Gemara in an intense way and, and, and being an authority figure require a mindset that is more geared at objective law as opposed to human, um, you know, a, a, a human and, and goodness-centered. But a family and a society needs both voices. And there are times when the voice of consequence should win out, and there are times when the voice of going beyond should win out. And li- like a Kaddish Baruch Hu, it sometimes it goes with, this is it, is a law, you have to follow it, and there are consequences. And now it's time for you to take consequences. Or... I'll extend myself and give you another chance. Both of these are voices, and, and I think in society, man supplies one, woman supplies another. One more before Mincha? Yeah. Okay. Um, do you have advice of how we can find a rabbi after yeshiva, and what kind of rabbi we should be looking for? <laughs> you know, it's, I, I would say the best example is like when you're looking for a doctor who's a specialist, you start with your primary care physician, Two things should, will govern it. First of all is, if you're coming from yeshiva and you feel comfortable with the rabbis in yeshiva, whichever rabbis you feel he's a comfortable guide, ask him who he could touch, put you in touch with. That would be the next one. And you also want to look around at the society of people. So you have, let's say you're in a community with many people. There's a certain group that you feel most comfortable with. This is the people that their mindset, their attitude is comfort with you, who are they looking for guidance to? That's, that usually would be your, 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 your initial way of doing it. And, and learning in yeshiva, one of the things you should gain in yeshiva is, uh, 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 you know, to, like I said, to become an educated consumer. To, you, the more you know, the more you'll be able to understand who's an outlier, who's an extreme outlier, who is part of a general consensus, who seems to be hitting home what you learned, and, and seems to be, you know, kind of following more, you know, what you feel is, is, is in halach and so on. Those, those, are the, those are the ways to go with it. So recommendations from the people, whoever you feel comfortable when you leave yeshiva, who's he recommending for the next step, wherever you're going to? And where are the group of people in this town that you belong to? The people at that same level of focus, serious, looking, Worldliness, whatever it is, whatever it is that you describe yourself at, and you feel comfortable at, th- that group will probably have the, the leader that that would be appropriate for you. And if I can't find both a community and a leader, do I choose to be with a great leader, or do I choose to be with a great community, even though I can't find a leader there? I, I, I would feel a community, because at the end of the day, you live your life in a community. The people you're going to talk to, the people you're going to interact with, the people your kids will interact with. And, they, and, and, they, and their kids will interact. If you don't feel comfortable with them in either direction, you can have a problem. You, for, in terms of leadership, you can, you, can, you can make do by having somebody that you can go to occasionally. In, by Hasidim, they used to travel occasionally to the Rebbe. Uh, somebody you can call up, somebody you can keep tabs with. But community is day in, day out. It's every minute of the day. And if, you, if you don't feel you belong there, then, then you, you, you're missing a big part of your Yiddishkeit, of, of, your, of, your, of your Yiddish life. Thank you very much. Okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you.